Ephesians chapter 9, and we're picking back up where we left off last week, and we finished last week in verse 13. We took the first 13 verses, and we continue today in the second section of the book of Romans. If you remember, it's broken up into three sections, and this section we started last week is on the problems of salvation. And last week, as we saw in that first 13 verses, that we saw the heart of God through Paul's love for the Jewish people. If you remember, he was willing to say, I'm willing to give up my salvation. But he, he had that desire. He said, I wish I could just replace those I love, those Jewish, uh, my brothers of, in the Jewish faith. If I just step aside and let them pave the way to be able to be saved, I'm willing to do that. He had such a heart, such love, and it revealed such the heart of God. And that is what we should have, is a heart of God. That we would just earnestly pray and desire for those in our community, our neighbors, our family, our friends, that they would be saved. That they would decide to, to, to believe in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for them. That they would just believe. And how desperately we should be praying for that, for our community and families. We also saw that the deity of Jesus Christ was clearly stated by Paul in verse 5 that he is the eternally blessed God. And we also saw that Paul brought out to us three or two of the Old Testament illustrations that depict or illustrate God's sovereign choice. And if you remember, he brought the first one was he showed that his, he had to make a sovereign choice between Isaac and Ishmael, verses 6 through 9. And he also had to, God had to choose between Jacob and Esau, verses 10 through 13. Today we're going to see that third illustration that Paul, is re, I referred to last week. And that is the sovereign, God's sovereign choice between Moses over Pharaoh, verses 14 through 18. And we will also see that Paul is going to answer two key questions for you and I today. Two key questions, and he'll even use a very practical example that the Jewish people clearly understood at that time what that meant. And the two questions he's going to answer for us is, is God unrighteous, verses 14 through 18? And the second question, is God unfair, verses 19 through 24? So as we follow along here, we're going to hopefully, Lord willing, finish up this chapter. But we'll see how it goes. It's a lot of verses. But let's just take the first part here. Let's read with me here. Verse 14, chapter 9 of Romans. It says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, desires, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to, to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Now let's stop right there for a minute, and let's take this very first question that Paul is going to answer, that he's anticipating, that the people are going to ask based on 
last week's teachings or those writings in the first 13, 13 verses, and that is, is God unrighteous? Now, when we left that teaching last week, we saw that Paul anticipated the reader's minds is the fact that is God unrighteous in his decision to choose Jacob over Esau or Isaac over Ishmael? And how does God make these decisions of what he's going to do or not do? And, and sometimes people can look at what's going on and through their own, leaning on their own understanding and looking at their visuals and hearing certain words and all oh, the, the, the complaining and the gossips and stuff. They can sometimes say, well, God, is God unrighteous? Is that fair in the decision that he's made? Why would he have done that? Why would he make us go there? Or why would he not allow that? And we have these tendencies to get into our minds versus coming back and settling it in our minds, the fact that God is righteous. Regardless of how we feel and regardless of what we think and regardless of the circumstances, he is righteous. And we must understand that. And so as we take a look at this, if you remember here in verse 13 that we talked about last week, Paul quoted out of Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And we see that God chose Jacob, or Israel, to be the people group by which he, Jesus, would come into the world and not through the people group of Esau, the Edomites. And so why did he do that? Why did he choose to go through the lineage of Jacob and not through the lineage of Esau? It's very simple. He's sovereign. Are you with me? He's sovereign. He knows what's best. He knows what's right. He knows what's good. He has an eternal plan. Regardless of what we think and feel at the moment. So, we see very clearly in this text here, if you look at the original Greek text, it makes it very clear that Paul anticipated a negative response from his readers. So the Jews would question God's sovereign choice over here. He said, why is his decision or why is God's choice so in a way that seems to not be fair and that what people would claim or have the ability to cast down into people's minds that would say that God must be injustice. There must be unrighteousness in this situation, in his decision. But the issue is not justice, but non-justice. There is a difference. See, God's sovereign choice or decision is based on his foreknowledge and the giving of his grace and mercy in a situation. That is not injustice. It is non-justice. You've got justice in the middle, and the outer ring surrounds that in two forms. God's grace and mercy, non-justice, and then there's also injustice. But God is not injustice. He's just non-justice in this situation because he showed mercy in this situation, did he not? He showed mercy between his in his decision. He could have wiped out Jacob as well. <laughs> he didn't. Even though he deserved it, he didn't get what he deserved. That is called mercy. If you get something that you don't deserve, I mean, I mean, 
you've earned something. You got something you didn't earn at all. That's grace, is it not? So the issue is not justice, but non-justice. As, as sovereign God, he has the right to show mercy to whomever he chooses. In fact, he is not under, under any obligation to extend mercy to any one of us. Did you know that? But he shows mercy to you and I anyway. Even though we don't deserve it. There's no obligation that God does that. God is not unjust in his actions. Even Jehoshaphat told the judges of the southern kingdom, with, he says, with the Lord our God, there is no injustice or partiality, 2 Chronicles 19.7. So did God choose correctly between Jacob and Esau? Well, yes. If you read your Bibles, you know the story. You see the fact that Esau had no interest in the spiritual things of God. But actually loved and wanted to live in a cardinal way. He loved cardinal things. We see that very clearly in the scriptures. So of course God chose correctly. He always does. So remember, God is righteous. God is sovereign. And God is just in all he does. Just remember that. Regardless of how you feel, regardless of how you think in the situations. Now, as we see here in the next verses here, verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy and I will have compassion whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. So in these verses, you can see very clearly as Paul states out of Exodus chapter 30, or yeah, chapter 33, verse 19, he says that Paul makes the point that God's sovereign choice is right, God's sovereign choice is good, but how he works with people in showing his mercy and compassion will vary depending on his sovereign decisions or choice he makes. See, when God, when did God make that, that, that statement? If you think back in Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, he makes this statement prior to the whole situation with Moses and the people. If you remember, Moses was gone for, what, 40 days and 40 nights. He was up on the mountaintop with God, and he was receiving the Ten Commandments, and he was receiving all the, the oracles and all the things that he needed to do, building the tabernacle. I mean, he was up there a long time. I mean, can you imagine? We think of just two Ten Commandments coming down. But he was receiving all kinds of information to come back to give to the people that would be good and right for the people. But while he's up there, God, the Lord said what to him? You better get down there because they are turning on, on me and they are, they're you know, bringing in a false god. So Moses makes his way back down the mountain and he gets down there and he realizes they had taken all the gold and melted it down and built a golden calf to worship and they were dancing all around what are you doing Aaron I, I don't know brother I don't know how this happened no you know of course he knew what happened the people convinced him to do something that was ungodly and so God said that he right from the very beginning that he said to I will pardon them because Moses interceded for the people and said oh please God have mercy on these people and God showed grace to the people, if you remember. 
and he allowed them to live. He held back what they deserved. They deserved justice, did he not? He should have wiped them all out, but he didn't. He held back and he showed mercy. Why? Because God is sovereign. <clears throat> it reveals his merciful characteristic of who he is. Remember, and even in verse 16, God is in control and his mercy does not depend on man's desires. It says it doesn't depend on who wills. And it doesn't depend on man's effort. Oh, God, you need to show me mercy because I've done all these good things for you today. No. That's not why you receive mercy. No one deserves and can earn his mercy. Matthew 5, 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they sh shall obtain mercy. So we too, as our God shows mercy when they don't deserve it, we too should show mercy to obtain mercy. Psalm 103, 17 but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to, chil to children's children. So you and I are too have that same characteristic of mercy on someone else's life. Because it's good, it's right. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of God that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When you find yourself in trouble, you find someone else is in trouble, and they've come to you because they're in deep trouble, where do you take them? Well, you take them to the throne of God, grace. You obtain mercy and you find grace into the time of help and in time of need. You bring them to the Lord. You go to the Lord when you're in that time of need. And he'll meet you right there. And he'll show his grace and his mercy in that moment. See, although God elects with sovereign freedom, it does not mean that Israel had nothing to do with their rejection. Later on in the chapter, we're going to see in verses 30 and 32 that Israel made a very bad choice. They failed to obtain a right standing with God because they pursued based on works and not based on faith that God had called them to do. And so we remember, as we move on, that the sovereignty of God does not set aside human responsibility. And we are going to see that even more clearly next, next chapter. Now, in verse 17, we see as we move on, he says, for the scripture, Paul makes it very clear, he brings it back to the scripture, highlights the scripture. He says, for the scripture says to, to the Pharaoh, or to the Pharaoh, or to the person in leadership, the person in power, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. Ooh, these are some, some good verses here to ponder on. Because as you look at these verses, Paul states or quotes out of Exodus 9.16. 
And Paul the Apostle here now presents this third illustration or the sovereign decision that God makes between Moses and Pharaoh. Moses, I'm going to make a decision for you. This is how it's going to play out. I'm going to have the people follow you. You're in a position of power, even though you weren't perfect. No, you didn't do things right. But I'm going to still bless you and show mercy upon you and the people through, through your leadership. But now let me use Pharaoh as an example of where I'm not going to bless. And we see in this, this example here that Paul uses the Egyptian Pharaoh. And we see it in, in Exodus as the historical example where God, he says here in these verses, that he raised this man up into a position of power for a purpose of God. Pharaoh, this ruthless enemy of God's people, was raised to the position as of king of Egypt so that God might display in the evidence of God's power and of his name to be declared across all the earth. Now that's something very difficult, especially in the time of an election, isn't it? He freed the Israelites from under Pharaoh's hand and other nations heard about it and were in awe of what God had done for his people. Go back and read Exodus chapter 15, Joshua chapter 2, 1 Samuel chapter 4. You can see how God raised this man up to a position of power with all the power of the world and God brought his people out from under his mighty, powerful hand so that God would be glorified through it all. Now, although Pharaoh's rise to the position of authority is a secular focus, I understand that. It's a secular position. And sometimes people, Christians, think God has nothing or say or to do with people in positions of power. But if you go back and you understand the scriptures, you'll see that is not true. Romans 13 verse 1 says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Daniel chapter 2 verses 20 and 21 Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So God is in control even to those who are appointed in positions of king or positions of of, of leadership in, in what we call today modern of presidencies and the Congress and the Senate and mayors and all. Think of all the positions of power that oversee to protect and to guide and make decisions for the people. God ultimately has the final say of who's going to be in those positions. Now that doesn't neglect for you and I as Christians to be in guard and engaged into the community or into the society of what takes place. We have the position of ability to vote and we are to vote by seeking God's wisdom on who to vote for. 
And it's very clear for us as Christians. It's not complicated. I have so many people asking me, who do you vote for? I said, you just seek the Lord because it's very clear for you and I. It's not complicated for us. If you're a Christian with a biblical worldview, you're always good and you know what the scriptures say. It is very clear who you will vote and who you will not vote for. Why? Because from the mouth of one said that she will kill babies. That's not a problem for her. So when you hear someone say, I have no problem killing babies, that is completely against the scripture. There is no question in your mind who you cannot vote for. I'm not saying, you know, environmentally, I, God says this world is going down. So don't let the environment be the top reason why you vote for somebody. That's, that's insanity. Well, it's all about the economy. Well, tell me anybody who's doing it God's way out there. Are you, are you managing your money God's way? Then if you are, are any of those doing that? No. So you don't use that as an example. Choose life as your number one example of why you vote. And the Supreme Court, these men and women who are appointed are the ones who are making the decisions. Now, let's go back to Romans chapter 9. <laughs> oh, Lord, have mercy. Let me have a drink of water on that one. As you know, I never talk politics at the pulpit, but man, today when it came out so clearly uh, in the scriptures, I was like, this whole week, I'm like, oh, Lord, have mercy here. <laughs> but it's truth, is it not, my brothers and sisters? Don't make it any more complicated. Just be in line with what God says in the scriptures, and every facet will tell you we always choose God, and we always choose his way, period. Because he says right here, he raised Pharaoh up. And whatever the outcome of that election will be, that is the person that God is going to allow to fill out his eternal plan long term. We cannot, don't have to fear. We don't have to be striving and in, in, in turmoil in our minds. We just have to do what is right on our part, vote, and do it so that we're not voting for someone who's going truly and cle clearly against God's word. And then we wait and see what God is going to appoint in the position of authority. Then we sit back and we continue to live our lives of biblical worldview and continue to share the gospel, continue to encourage those in the faith. And as things come spiraling out of control, as we know it will, we're there ministering and helping those in need. It's very simple. We don't have to be anxious for anything, especially in the turmoil that we see going on. Because we are certainly not in control. But remember God's sovereign choice. He is in control. Romans 11.34 says, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Who are you and I to counsel God in what he, or he should do? We also know in Isaiah 55, 8, 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
That's why we seek after the Lord. God, give us wisdom of, in this situation, how we deal with this. And then we see Paul kind of summarizing in verse 18, therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he pardons. See, Paul is bringing out a very key principle of divine action on what he has chosen to do with this person called Pharaoh. Now, God shows mercy as he chooses. It's very clear. If he chooses to show mercy, he'll show mercy. If he chooses not to show mercy, he won't, he won't show mercy. And it's because of his sovereign choice, he knows that is what is right and good in that situation and for that person's life. And in this case, we see clearly that God is, says that hearts can become hardened. Well, does that mean God is choosing by hardening someone's heart so they cannot go to heaven? No, that's not what it says. It says that he is sovereign in all that he does, although the text may kind of point in the fact that you read it from a broad perspective that he, God, it says God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. But if you go back and you read Exodus chapters 4 through 14, Great afternoon or great Sunday afternoon read. And have your tea and your coffee and read through it. And you will see, especially if you go back to the original language, the heart, the word heart has two different meanings in the original language. Now, if you look at that, you'll see that the hardening process is referred to 20 times in those chapters. Ten times it is referring to, uh, to we are told that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then ten times we see that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But in that heart reference, it means that he is affirming or confirming or solidifying what is in Pharaoh's heart already. Two different words in the Hebrew, though. So when God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he was confirming Pharaoh's own bad heart, and we see that the word of God declares and reveals his power. God gave Pharaoh an opportunity to repent during that whole process of getting his people out of, of, of Egypt. And each time that God used his word, sent his word to Pharaoh, Pharaoh had a choice to believe God's word, follow through with God's word, and to make the choice to continue through and, 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 and say, yes, your people can go. And repent. God, I, you know, I, I, who am I to go against the God of Israel? But each time he appeared to seem like he was going to, what happened? Pharaoh hardened his heart and then pushed right back and said, no, the people can't go. Nowhere, anywhere, in the word of God, God, does it say God hardened or first hardened that person or made that person hardened from the beginning. If you remember the scriptures, he, and as we will continue in this next part, you remember that God created you and I, With Adam and Eve, 
vessels of what? Of honor. Vessels of mercy. But it wasn't until sin entered in the Garden of Eden that you and I were born sinners. But in that process, as we will see, he has, continues to work in your heart and my heart, revealing to you himself so that you and I have a free will, a free choice to choose or not. And each time you are given the word of God, each time you are, he's revealing himself to you, you and I have a decision to soften the heart and to be obedient and do what God's called us to do. Or what happens? Or someone shuts down and says, I don't want to hear the things of God. I don't want to be obedient to the word of God. And that causes what? A hardening of the heart. Did God harden your heart? Say no. He didn't harden your heart. You made a decision that caused yourself to harden your own heart. He just confirms it. And we see in the scripture at some point... We see in scriptures a very serious point that a person can continue to harden their heart to a point where God confirms it like Pharaoh and says there is no return. That they will not be saved. Did you know that? That's why at some point as you share the gospel and share the gospel with a particular person, sometimes as they reject it, you may want to best step back and allow God just to let them watch your life and without you saying anything. Because the, every time you engage and every time you try to get them to make a commitment for Christ and they keep rejecting, they're actually making a decision to harden their heart. So sometimes it's best just to let the Spirit of God do and let someone else come in their life as God leads them. But we see here clearly that remember that it's important to build one's theology not on personal perceptions of what ought to be based on what you think or what other people think. But we should always base it upon the biblical revelation of the character and the purpose of God. That is why we study the verse-by-verse verse teachings, because we want to know the character of God. We want to know the purpose of God, and we want our life to, our will to align with his purpose. Amen? Are we with me? Holy grunt, holy yes, smile. I'm okay with any of those feedback that you're tracking with me here. It's, that's, why, that's why it is. Because God has freedom and he's sovereign and it's good. And one of the things I have noticed, especially in the culture today, that because God has the sovereignty choice or the freedom to make decisions between certain things that we may not completely understand, and it doesn't set well with modern thinking in the world today. Many lean on philosophy. And this philosophy of life stems from a combination of relativism and a belief in personal autonomy. That everything's relative. Or I am in control of my life and whatever I decide or whatever it is, that's the way it should be and God should just line up with what I want. And that kind of thinking that is in modern thinking is not biblical thinking. 
And so as you read these verses and meditate on these verses uh, today and later today and go on, you need to change the way you think and how and line it up with how God thinks. Because if not, you're going to struggle as a Christian. You will struggle in your walk and you'll make some really bad decisions. Now, verse 19, we see that now the second question, is God unfair? And we see here in 19, he says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, you are, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Again, Paul anticipates this from his readers. Remember, the Holy Spirit is guiding and writing and, and guiding his hand to write these things down in the scriptures. God breathed. And the Holy Spirit is given this uh, understanding to Paul that, hey, you're going to have these questions come from. Let's put the, down the answer to these so they'd be clear in the, for, our, the, for the readers. And so as he is obedient and he's writing down based on the Holy Spirit guiding him, he's going to address how can God hold man responsible if God makes the decisions and who can go against God in regards to that. God is unfair. If God is in control of all things, if he knows all things and he's going to have it his way, then God, that's unfair. God is just unfair in this whole situation because I want to do what I want to do. So that must mean in verse 19, well, how can he hold me responsible or find fault if, I'm, if he's in complete control? If I make mistakes, it's his fault. If I think these th this way, it must be his fault. That's how, it can kinda, the, how the enemy can screw up your mind and get you to start thinking and blaming God for this because he's unfair. Remember, Paul is being directed by the Holy Spirit, and he's making it very clear. And you see his answer in verse 20 and the fact that it is not re really an answer but a rebuke to, the, to his readers. He's not really giving an answer. He's kind of rebuking them to even think these thoughts. And Paul quotes here a clause out of Isaiah 29, 16. And he basically says, do you think you are to be respond to and question God? That's really how he's rebuking them. Who are you to respond and even question God's sovereign choices here? He has created you for a, with a plan and a purpose, period. And that plan and purpose that he has for your life, he wants to do that, and it's going to be good, it's going to be right, it's going to be great. Now, if you lean on your own understanding, and you don't, want to do what he wants you to do, go where he wants you to go, do the things he's called you to do, and you fight him all the way, it's not his problem. That is you and I's problem. Did you know that? And for you and I to go back and say, how, God, how could you have made me be born in this family? How could you have given me this father and this mother? How could you have Put me in the north country in the snow. How could you, you really messed this up? You know, this is just not right. Well, I'll say what Paul says to the people here. What he's saying to us. Who do you think you are? To question and to doubt God's sovereignty for your life. 
do you believe God's in control of your life as a Christian or not? These people, these Jewish believers thought they could earn it. They could run hard enough. They could do and work hard enough. They could earn God's love. No, you can't do it. I just have to desire it. Whatever my desires are, God will line up to those things. No, they're not. And Paul's making it very clear that the fact that he formed you and he has complete say about your life. Matter of fact, he goes on in verse 21 and he uses a very practical example for you and I and that they understood. It. And he says, does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make the one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? So he says, okay, let me use an example for you guys of practicality. Here's a lump of clay. Doesn't a potter grab the same lump and he takes that same lump of clay and then he puts it on the wheel and he starts with his loving hands to create that piece of what he's going to use it for. He already knows what he's going to use it for. Sometimes he's going to create this beautiful vase. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be great. And everyone's going to be awe about it. But that's what was the purpose of that dirt. But then he can also take from that same lump of clay and create a spittoon, a garbage can, a cooking pot. But that is the plan and the purpose for that clay. Now, does the pot, the spittoon, start spitting back up at God? What do you think of creating me like that? I want to be like a vase. It's foolishness, is it not? That's what Paul is saying here. But how and whatever he's planned for the purpose of your life is going to be good. It's going to be great. And it's going to be for his purpose for his kingdom. Do you trust him? Or another word we can use, do you believe in him? And he's going to use the vessels for honor and, and, and another for dishonor. What does that mean? Is he going to create something for dishonor? Remember, go back to what I already mentioned. He created everyone to be in a relationship with him and it'll be vessels of honor through for eternity. But sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden and we all became vessels of dishonor because of sin. Because of our sin, we're automatically, all of us, we're di- uh, uh, vessels of dishonor. But then God had a plan to send his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him shall become vessels of honor again through vessels of mercy. Because of his mercy, he allows you and I to come back into a right relationship with God. And it's based on you and my choice if we want that relationship with Jesus. He doesn't make you a vessel of dishonor. He's giving you and I every opportunity to become vessels of honor again. Did you know that? And it's all based on that free will and the choice if we want to do that. See, the sovereign creator has the same authority over his creatures, especially in light of man's origin from the dust, Genesis 2-7. Now, Paul didn't give us the full story here. As we will see in verse 22, and also the in next, uh, next week in the next chapter, 
we will see that the fact that God is very patient with you and I. And that even though we deserve wrath, he's long-suffering and he's merciful to give us time to come to him. So remember, God's freedom operates always in a moral framework. Human logic cannot harmonize with divine sovereignty and human freedom. Both are clearly taught in scripture, is it not? Neither should be it be adjusted or or mingled or somehow change parameters to somehow fit our understanding. And I'll give you an illustration. You have a coin. The coin is very clear to you. It has a front and a back part of that coin. But it's only one coin. That one side of the coin is God's sovereignty. But the other side of the coin is human responsibility. Both are taught in the scripture. You cannot separate that. If you take away the back, you don't have a coin. You have the front only. You have to have both. They do not commingle. There's one on one side, one on the other, but they both are one. And we will see that next week as we study human responsibility, as we study God's responsibility this couple of weeks. Next week, we'll see human responsibility, and we both play in our role as God designed. But he's in control. He knows what's best. What if, verse 22, what if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory of the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. God prepares men and women for his glory. Vessels of honor, vessels of mercy. And it's only through that that people can see your life and our, my life and we can see the fact that God has done an incredible change in our life. And he'll, people will look at your life and they'll say, God had such mercy on you. You did not deserve what you, you have. You have messed up your life all these years and God came in and changed you and brought you and given you life. That is such grace, such mercy he has shown upon your life. And that brings what? People's attention on who? On God and God Almighty because you don't take any credit for that. You don't take any of the honor or glory from God in regards to what he's done in your life. And he gets all of it. Now, Paul continues here, and we'll wrap this up here. He says, as he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning uh, Israel through the number of the children of Israel as be as the, as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. 
And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. So we see in these verses right here that he uses many of the of the scriptures from Isaiah and Hosea to bring back to the people what God had written in the scriptures. And he says, God has got a plan here. God is, knows exactly what's going on. He's going to be, reveal through these Old Testaments that Gentiles are going to be included in God's redemptive plan. And that it was always his plan to bring the Gentiles in, regardless you Jewish people that you wanted nothing to do. You thought they were just dogs. They had no value. Not in God's eyes. The Gentiles, which are you and I, <laughs> praise God, that we were included in God's redemptive plan. That we all, by faith, had the ability to come and give our life over to Jesus Christ. The Jews also, but we see in the scripture, only a remnant of the Jews make a decision. Just like Paul, he was a remnant that made a decision to, to follow Jesus. As his, just as the scripture says, the Messiah would be coming. And he believed. He saw the light. And he believed. He was a remnant. And the scripture says, if there wasn't a remnant, if there wasn't mercy, God's mercy on the people of Israel who rejected the Messiah, if they did not have a remnant, then the consequences would have become, you would have become like Sodom. That's no Gouda. That's no Gouda to become like Sodom. And you would become like or destroyed like Gomorrah. That's what would have happened to the Jewish people. A nation of Israel. But by God's mercy and because of his sovereign choice, he pulled out a remnant and he brought them into the church. Remember, there's only three. There's only three group people group. There were the Jews, there were the Gentiles, and then there was the church, which is made up of Jews and the Gentiles. A remnant of the Jews and the Gentiles. And if you remember in the scriptures, what was happening initially, like Paul and all them, they were mostly Jews. But when the Gentiles started coming to Christ, they overwhelmed, and many of the Jews did not continue. And that was only why there's only a remnant of Jews. They didn't like the fact that the Gentiles were part of God's plan. They could not understand how God would choose the Gentiles. They were all supposed to be destroyed and wiped out. What do we call that? Pride of, 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 a, of a nation brought down Israel for a time. But we also learned last week that God is not done with Israel. That in the kingdom age, in the millennial age, he's going to bring and reveal himself once again to the Jewish nation. Because the Lord is, will finish the work. It will be cut short. But it will finish the work. Why? Because God's sovereign. Just remember, it is faith, not national origin, that brings a person into the family of God. Just because you're part of a Christian family does not make you a Christian. Just because your grandparents were a Christian and they went to church doesn't make you a Christian. Just because this was a Christian nation at one time doesn't make everyone in America a Christian. 
just because they were Jewish did not make them somehow going to automatically have eternal life. They had to accept the Messiah. And only a remnant did so far. And then verse 30 through 33 says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek, seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and the rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So these, these verses is the state of Israel today. Does it not? God says right here to the Gentiles, to you and I, those who pursue righteousness by faith will receive what? God's righteousness. Because it's by faith alone, in Christ alone, that we receive his righteousness. But the Jews chose to follow the law of righteousness. They had the do's and don'ts. They tried to keep it perfectly, even though they knew they weren't perfect in keeping the law. They didn't choose to follow a relationship with God based on faith. They were trying to have a relationship with God by the things they could do and earn and the rewards they wanted. That, we see clearly in the scripture, caused them not to attain righteousness. Because they did not seek it by faith. They seeked it by works. That's why you and I, it's by God's grace that he, he's paid it all. His work on the cross, Jesus' work on the cross paid it all. There's nothing you can do to earn his love, to receive the grace of God. You just have to believe in Christ is the only way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by who? Him. Do you believe that? If you do, you will be saved. 